0: Funny, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory. We're trying to cram these in here with, uh, with Ken Fish between all kinds of travel uh, that we're doing. So uh, on this week's episode, we are doing part two of Ken's uh, trip to Armenia, and uh, we're going to hear some more stories and some more updates. So Ken, thank you so much for, uh, for taking time and letting us squeeze all this in.
1: Yeah, glad to be back and glad to do this. And uh, just FYI, some of the cramming in is because of your travel, not just mine.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Very true.
1: So um, anyway, I thought I thought today we would finish out the Armenia debrief um, with some thoughts and reflections on the trip from one of the team members. Now, this individual has gone with me on other international trips in the past. And um, he has made it his standing practice when he's on the road with me to write what he calls postcards from the road, but they're not physical postcards like we all remember or that you buy when you're at whatever tourist destination. Um, These are all sent in by email and they all go to the prayer team that he leads at his home church. Um, this individual is not a U.S. national, uh, but I can't disclose his identity for reasons that I can't go into. I'll just say um, he needs to remain anonymous, but he said it was okay to share his postcard contents. And this morning, as I was thinking about the podcast, I had several things as possibilities, but this popped up in my um, one of my communications channels, and uh, he had posted what he called postcard ten. Well, it was a 12-day trip, and so um, day one was travel. Day 12 was travel, but this was his 10th postcard home um, of 10 days of continuous travel and ministry that we did together. Um, So obviously, I'm not including content from the other postcards, and we won't go back and you know pull out more of this unless we get a ton of uh, messages from listeners saying we loved it. You know, give us more, but. Uh, this was kind of his, uh, his postscript for the entire trip. And he says these are not in any particular order. Um, and I'm just reading them the way they are. So please don't take this as any sort of self-aggrandizement. Uh, when you go on a ministry trip with Ken, you get to encounter ministry situations which you have never encountered before at home. This, is co- this causes you to grow you also often tend to get longer to pray for people because they come to the meetings with a significant desire for healing, whereas that's not always true in your home church. So back in the day when uh, when I was working with John and then when I traveled also with Blaine Cook um, and also with Lonnie Frisbee for that matter, I mean, there was there was a kind of hunger that people exhibited. And I think there is, I don't know what you want to call it. It it might be the, um, you know, the lack of honor for what is familiar or the, uh, you know, disregard for the common. Uh, but that certainly is a, is a reality. And it goes on many times when people are in their home environment. Um, you know, you kind of get on a routine, you're in a rush to get off to whether it's lunch after the church service, or maybe you've just got something else you have to do that day. But week by week, we fall into a routine and we lose our sense of expectation. Uh, When we go to these kinds of events, I mentioned on our last uh, podcast that I had team members who were stepping out while I was teaching and they were praying with people. And so some of those people, you know, might get an hour or two of prayer just during the prayer, excuse me, the teaching, the translation, which, of course, at least doubles the length of the session, uh, as well as the question and answer period. And so, um, as this individual said, you may get longer to pray, and you may see more things happen. I've, I've said at different times when I've taught on you know, different dimensions and aspects of healing, blah, blah, blah. I prayed for this person and we spent four hours doing it or five hours doing it. People always kind of go. And part of that's because they can't imagine spending that kind of time with anybody uh, for prayer. I I think they think they'll run out of things to pray. But when you pray the way we do, where we peel back the layers, um, a lot of times one thing actually does lead to another. And so it is possible to spend that kind of time when you're on a ministry trip, you're there to be on a ministry trip. So, I mean, what else are you going to do? It's not like you got to, you know, run off because tomorrow morning you got to get up for work or you've got a train to catch or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so this individual is is really capturing that reality. And, I, and I'll also say that uh, that one comment reflects something that many people don't actually give a lot of thought to. Namely, uh, when we are in the process of ministry, I think a lot of people, uh, we've been trained in America to, depending on your faith tradition, where you, you know, wh- which part of the church you're coming from, you might have been told to name it and claim it. You might have been told to make a decree. Uh, you might have t- been told to make a confession with the understanding that confession brings possession But all of these are microwave models of prayer, put it in for 30 seconds, hit the start button. And when it comes out, it'll be piping hot. And I think in America, we have allowed our uh, quest for efficiency and our um, desire not to get bogged down in long drawn out situations. We've actually allowed that to infect our Christianity. And so what this person is writing in this postcard home, really, I mean, he's not unpacking it the way I am, but it reveals all of those underlying behaviors and dynamics that we so often live with in America. And it's because we are busy people. It is because we have jobs to get to, kids to take care of, people to meet, meals to cook, uh, church meetings to go to. But, um, you know, there's a lot of books that have been written in the last several years about an unhurried life or a life, you know, lived at peace or, you know, whatever. And, um, those are, those are good books. They, they don't have a wide audience. (laughs) And I think they don't have a wide audience because many people are too busy to read the book. And, (laughs) and also they may not like the topic, the subject matter. And all of this reminds me that when Lazarus died, Jesus waited three days to go. And of course, this led to a lot of controversy with uh, the sisters when he shows up at Lazarus's tomb. But um, I I really think it behooves us to give some thought to the pace at which we live our lives and the way we use the time that we are given by the Lord. Uh, Everybody only has 24 hours in a day, and we all need to sleep some. We need to eat some. Uh, we need some amount of time for personal grooming, whatever exactly that looks like for us. And so that is a uh, that's a reality that we need to we need to give some thought to.
0: yeah, I, I, I'm glad you're saying that because I mean, I think both you and I have had many 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 discussions about this but you know the, the most effective prayer times that we've had and I, I'm even thinking about one just recently where someone was dramatically yielding. A long term, I mean, life, almost lifelong type thing took a long time and it wasn't necessarily a be healed type prayer. There was areas of unforgiveness that had to be walked through. There was all of these sort of things. And I think it's important for people to realize that just, just to be effective, it takes time.
1: That's right. That's right. There's also a grace that comes to people, I think, when we're on the road. Um, we noted it years ago when I was working with John. That it, you know, you'd often see more dramatic stuff, and people called it the anointing under John uh, back then. Sometimes they'd call it an apostolic anointing because we'd been sent out. Uh, different ways that people would describe it, but they all became familiar with it, and it was not rare to experience. I wouldn't say it was universally experienced, but it was not rare. Um, the other thing that comes to my mind about all of this is um, I'm reminded of John G. Lake, who, to anyone who studies the healing ministry, he's kind of standard fare. Everybody reads his stuff. I I became completely enamored of John Lake many years ago when I was working for John and was preparing materials for him. Um, and of course, even, even in that period, John Lake, kind of the peak of his ministry had been about 50 or 60 years before. We're somehow getting close to that in terms of our own distance removed from the heyday of John Wimber's ministry, or if you want to go back another decade to the heyday of the charismatic renewal. Um, But bottom line, we're, we're starting to approximate that distance. And with that, we sometimes lose clarity on things. And one of the things that John Lake did. And if you read his journals and you have your eyes open, um, you will see that he says, blah, blah, blah. We went to brother so-and-so's house to pray. um, And we prayed for about six hours. And presently the spirit of God began to move. And then brother so-and-so was gloriously healed and rose up and, you know, never went back to his sick bed, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, we, we think of John Lake as one of the signal healers of all time. One of the greats, the one everybody wants to emulate, but does everybody want to emulate? I had to pray for brother so-and-so for six hours and wait for the anointing. Now, I don't know if I like the language of wait for the anointing uh, particularly, but I will say this, there are times you start out and there isn't much anointing and it just seems like things aren't happening. And as you pray and as you wait on the Lord, you start to get insights, and as you go with those insights, because you're now following what his, what leading he is giving, as you go with those, oftentimes the anointing begins to increase or to flow. Um, I think my father is always at work, and I too am working, but that doesn't mean I always discern how my father is at work. And therefore, I need to you know, align with that, figure that out, flow with it, go with it, um, that's a very different prayer model again, from this sort of walk in and just sort of make the declaration and expect that it's all going to go away. We really do have to remain connected to him. So John Lake knew this reality. And, uh, I can remember years ago, uh, praying and saying, Lord, I want to, you know, I want a healing ministry like John Lake. And I'm sure there are at least tens of thousands and possibly hundreds of thousands or millions of people who have prayed that same prayer. Um, but remember, if you're going to have a ministry like John Lake, there are going to be times that you need to pray for those kinds of durations to see the breakthroughs that you get, and I'll just reference that in our last session, I told about this guy from Armenia who went to Los Angeles, got involved in gangs, and we had a four-hour deliverance session with him on my last day in Armenia. I had actually planned to go out and buy some, you know, presents, souvenirs, things, for my family that day, all of that got shot to pieces because I was, you know, not exactly locked, but I was, I'll say locked in a room. Uh, I was, you know, positioned in a room with my team and there was no, um, there was no opportunity to break away and go out to the market. And so with that, you will find that ministering the way Jesus did and, you know, bringing the kingdom, waiting on the spirit, all of these things, there is a price behind the anointing that we don't often talk about. It may not be paid in dollars, it may be paid in time. And so the question that I often ask people when I'm training them for healing, or for that matter, to prophesy, you know, waiting on the Lord, hearing the voice of God, are you willing to pay the price in time? Are you willing to wait? Are you personally willing to pray for someone for three or four or five or six hours in order to see them set free from whatever their particular situation is? And a lot of times when I say that to people, as they say in Texas, they look like a cow staring at a news fence post. And it's an uncomfortable question, but it is one that I think all of us really need to give some thought to, if we're going to, you know, move into these, uh, these dimensions in the Lord.
0: Well, and I think too, I mean, yes, yes, yes. I echo all of that. And I think too, it it also brings to mind why it's so important that we have other people learning how to pray this way, because functionally we can only pray for so many people. That's right. Uh, It's not, you know, it's not a line them up and knock them down. I mean, every Sunday our church has a deliverance team and they could be in there after church until late at night, Yeah, you know? And so, uh, so we need more workers. We need the kingdom is, you know, the harvest is very, very white and we need more, more people that are willing to put in the time for sure. That's Right. It's
1: exactly right. Um, another thing that goes with that is I think, you know, in the West in general, this is not only the United States. It could be, uh, most of europe um, and even much of latin america central and south america um, you know we have such a culture of entertainment and you know we now carry all of our entertainment with us on our devices and so we can be anywhere and just start watching a movie or you know we're on facebook which has become a kind of entertainment of sorts it's not just news and whatnot that's getting posted um, but we have such a culture of entertainment that we often are distracted and pulled away from doing the work of the ministry. In fact, I might even say that in modern ministry circles, a lot of times we're so busy talking about the ministry that we're not actually doing the ministry. John Wimber used to say, slightly different, but but same idea. Um, you know, we'd rather we'd rather give to it, pray about it, sing about it, than actually do it. And so. Um, <laughs> you know, when it comes to this kind of breakthrough stuff, everybody says they want to see it. But again, at what price? At what price? All right. Um, So that was his first comment. The second one, uh, he's commenting on something that I said. So again, I'm just reading his remarks. Ken's comment that unless it's a sickness unto death, everything is fixable, has to be the standard of healing that we hold to. The problem is that in most churches, people are not willing to spend three hours in hands-on ministry and repeat as necessary until a kingdom breakthrough outcome is received, nor do they generally have the insight and experience to deal with the layers needing inner healing or deliverance or other matters until breakthrough can be achieved. Often, and very sadly, the best a church has to offer is an occasional intercessory prayer or we think that little arrow prayers up to God most days will do the trick. You often will not achieve healing unless you're competent practitioners of other disciplines. It's as simple as that. Now what this individual is referring to is what I call the integrated healing model. And I've never used this illustration until I was in Armenia because of the translation issue. And let me just add, Armenian takes about one and a half times as long as English to say the same idea. It's just the structure and nature of the language. I don't speak it, but I noticed that if I said something, my translator typically needed about one and a half times as long to say it as I did. So with that, um, and, and thinking about you know what this individual put in this postcard, um, how do I want to say this? The word of wisdom that came to me while I was preaching was I said, everybody here knows what a cavity is. And of course, everybody did tooth cavity. I said, sometimes you just get one that's kind of shallow. It's on the surface. You go to the dentist. And in the best case, you don't even need anesthesia. They just drill that little soft area out and fill it with a little bit of enamel or maybe some amalgam um, and you're, you're good to go. Um, other times you might need a little bit of anesthesia, but they just drill down into kind of the top layer of the tooth. Uh, but even that's a relatively quick and non-complicated uh, cavity. We all want all healings to be like that, but they're not. There are other times when you may have, particularly, you know, up here in the, in the jaw or the cheek area, you get a molar And depending on which tooth it is, it might have three, maybe four roots. And there are times you get a cavity and you need a root canal. And if you don't get a root canal, even if they think they've fixed it, you're going to get an abscess. And that then can go up into your bone. And I mean, it can become a much more complicated, expensive, involved process. Healing is like this in that... um, some healings are really quick and surfacy. You can literally say be healed in Jesus name, and it'll work just fine. But uh, but there are other times when that won't work. And what you need to do is, you know, get the drill and you start drilling into that root. And I've had only a couple root canals, but I have had them. And I noticed that you know the dentist had these long wires and he would stick them down into the tooth. And what he was doing was checking depth. He was really checking to see, did I get everything out? Did I clean it all the way out? And then he would fill it with whatever inert material. Again, it could have been amalgam or ceramic or whatever they were using, but the material doesn't matter, you get the point. And depending on the nature of the problem in the tooth, they might've had to take out all of those roots. So, what roots do we commonly find? Well, we can find sin roots. And in in our tradition, which is kind of vineyard and renewal, people don't like to talk about the sin roots of sickness. Uh, They like to talk about the broad sin that's in the world and that this can bring sickness to everyone. We used to do that in the vineyard, and and that's a true statement. But there are many cases in scripture where uh, people had specific sins of their own. And if they weren't forgiven, If that sin wasn't dealt with thoroughly, including repentance, they would not get healed. The best single example I can point to, although there are others, and because I'm not really teaching, I'm just summarizing here, is in Luke 5, when they bring the paralyzed man to Jesus, four friends are carrying him. In order to heal him, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us what his sins were. And in evangelical Christianity, we tend to say, well, yeah, Jesus is God. This proves that he's God. He has the power to forgive sins. But in fact, I think Jesus is very perspicacious. He wouldn't have said your sins are forgiven unless that man needed to know that his sins were forgiven. And that is the gateway to his particular healing. Now, that might not always be true, but in his case, it was a root canal healing. And that root canal healing required dealing with the sin root. Then there's the inner healing problem. This is when people have in in one kind of big summary form they've violated us, they've wounded us, they've sinned against us. And many times people can't really find the freedom they need without having that root cleaned out where they get inner healing. And of course this involves forgiving the offender and many Christians are not very good At forgiving those who have wronged them, and yet it's clearly commanded in Scripture and in more than one place. Um, But just remember, Jesus forgave those who crucified him as he was dying. And remember, too, that Peter says when he was crucified, he did not bring reviling words against those who had abused him. Well, I think much of modern Christendom could take a lesson from all this. So inner healing begins with our forgiving the other, but it also concludes with our receiving relief from the inner pain, the distress, some call it trauma that we carry from all these things that have happened to us. So there's another common root. Then there's deliverance. Sometimes there are evil spirits, and there are numerous examples in the Bible of people who had evil spirits who needed to be freed of those spirits in order to find healing. Um, One of the most obvious is in Luke, I can't remember if it's 13 or 16, But anyway, it's the woman who was bent over for 16 years with what the Bible calls an afflicting spirit or a disabling spirit. Um, So that spirit had to be delivered or or cast out, driven out in order for the full and comprehensive healing that was needed to occur. Now, all of this sounds like we're only thinking about physical healing, but I can tell you that when I deal with people who have mental illness or uh, emotional problems, A lot of it arises from whether it's spirits or this kind of trauma, the need for inner healing that uh, persists. Um, And it's only when those roots are cleaned out that we can get people free. Another common root is iniquity. And I've got a whole specialized teaching on iniquity, but iniquity is the stuff that we inherit from our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and so on. All of these are the roots needed in a more serious Uh, dental procedure, I'm using the term, you know, in quotes. But anyway, all this came to me when when we were in Armenia, I'd never really taught it that way. And everyone on the team said, man, that is an amazing, amazing illustration. I said, well, it came to me in midstream while I was preaching, because I was thinking, how on earth am I going to communicate these ideas to these people when it's gotta be translated into a language that takes 50% longer than English. And I just I just got this idea of a root canal on a tooth and they know what root canals are in Armenia. And so as soon as I said it, man, they got it. And you know what happened in the aftermath? The spirit of God broke out in the room and we had a, a number of people just boom, 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 got healed. Cause they came up and they said, this is my root. I need to have this fixed. So the team just pounced on the root. Prayed for that, and then boom, the next layer of healing followed. After that, I don't remember, but we, we had we had quite a number healed in that one session as the spirit of God just broke out in the room.
0: Well, yeah, and I just want everyone probably to listen to all of that that you just said again uh, because it's so crucial to people getting healed. There's there's so much that goes on uh, yeah. in that, so that's that's a fantastic fantastic example.
1: And of course, this point began with him some restating something I'd said at the dinner table one night, unless it is a sickness unto death, and the Bible does mention sickness unto death. I mean, everybody's going to die, including you and me, Grant. Um, You know, we're all going to die. But there are some sicknesses and diseases and problems that we can get that are not life-threatening. They can be very debilitating, and they can be uh, quite upsetting, But then there's the stuff that'll kill you, cancer, muscular dystrophy, uh, multiple sclerosis, ALS. Um, Some of that can be healed, but some of it is what the Bible itself terms a sickness unto death. And because it is a sickness unto death, that's the disease of which that person will die. Elisha the prophet, it says, he died of the disease of which he would die. On the other hand, when Moses died, it said his strength was not diminished and his vigor was not abated. So, you know, we have both states of nature. So, one of the questions we ask the Lord is Is this a sickness unto death? But let's assume that we don't even need to ask that because it's not, it's clearly not life threatening. It may be something quite serious, though, something like the inability to speak, or it may be something like blindness, or it may be something like a crippling condition. Well, these can be very, very uh, life altering, and I don't mean to minimize them in the least. I'm just saying they're of a different category. They won't take your life. And so if it's not a sickness unto death, um, somewhere in the Lord, in the ways of God, in the mind of God, there is a healing. And oftentimes we don't have practitioners of healing, prayer ministers, who are sophisticated enough, trained enough to understand the ways in which these things interrelate, uh, to discern the roots of what those things are, and then to go after them to remove them and get them healed. And I, I've told the story elsewhere. I don't remember if I've ever said it on our podcast. But I've told the story in other places of a woman that I prayed with for five years. Um, on and off each year. You know, As I would travel, she would come to my meetings. And she had a particular condition. It was a terrible condition. But it was not life-threatening. And after five years of praying for her... I I was, I was expended. I had nothing left. And I sat down to pray with her. And I said, Jesus, I don't have anything. You've got to give me something so this woman could get healed. And it was when I did that, then and only then the word of the Lord came to me. I knew instantly what I needed to do. I prayed into it and she was healed instantly of this condition and has remained healed to this day, but it took five years of pursuing it. So now I'm kind of combining the insight of the first that, you know, point on his postcard with this thing uh, on the second point, which is hers was not a sickness unto death. And so I just kept after it. I knew somehow, some way this thing could be healed. And it was. Yeah,
0: I think that's important. And I would also say too, uh, with this idea of sickness unto death, Um, you know, we, we do see in part and know in part. And so even if you might think that, even if you might, you know, we're asking the Lord, like what's going on, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean we, we immediately give up because we're like, ah, cancer's deadly. Looks like it's too much, you know, that sort of thing. It's, uh, it's really an invitation to continue to press in and uh, allow the Lord to do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. His third point was you get opportunities to do extended ministry when you go away. Um, so we've kind of covered that. I won't elaborate further. I'm going to uh, condense his comments. Uh, he said, but it's not just you. It's you and a ministry partner and with the resource of Ken at hand. So if things get stuck, you can ask him about what direction might you try to achieve the breakthrough? And again, that that is one of the benefits. And it's part of what I try to create in that environment is to be a resource um, and to train the team, and I try to pray with the team, and I don't mean for them, I mean they and I are ministering alongside so they can see kind of how I do what I do and hopefully glean some insight from that. Um, And then here's a fourth point, it's fun to gather around the meal table um, because Ken has known many of the major Christian leaders of the last 40 years uh, up close and personally, so you get to chat about a diverse range of subjects and get questions answered that you've never really had questions answered about. All right. The fifth point, curses are real. Uh, There's no doubt about that. We had the curse on the jewelry that one of our team members bought. Now, this was interesting. One of our team members came down violently ill, and he had bought a piece of jewelry, which uh, by outward appearances should have been completely fine. Um, Anyway, he bought it. And uh, one of the team members looked at him and said, what about that jewelry? Why don't you take that off? And they broke the curse that was attached to that piece of jewelry. So here's a discerning of spirits in operation. And the next day he was was almost significantly healed, excuse me, almost completely healed immediately. Um, And the next day he was completely healed. And then there was another woman who came and she had found a written curse in her house and as soon as the curse was broken, um, her so-called arthritis pain disappeared. And then there was another uh, incident in which two of the team visited the home of a woman who couldn't travel to us. So we sent them out to you know, take care of business uh, kind of as a, you know, whatever, a, a squad. Um, so this home belonged to the mother of one of the translators. They prayed against a curse on the house and the mother was healed. Now, I know in the West, particularly America, we have all kinds of issues with the idea of curses. But if you happen to have a family background from, say, Italy or Greece, where the evil eye is not rare, or maybe you're a Lebanese Christian or Syrian Christian, there are fewer of them, but they're around, and you talk with those people; they all know about these things. It's only in evangelical churches, and it's only among people who really have had no experience of this, so they they don't even have a framework. They don't even know what to say. but they tend to, you know, dismiss it and say, oh, "No, none of that really matters." Um, so again, this individual whose identity I can't disclose, but it would be interesting if you knew who they were and what they do for this individual to be writing that sentence is itself a paradigm shift. That's great,
0: only in Armenia.
1: Yeah, well, it could be other countries too. Um, Here's a sixth point, the presence of God is something that we in the West live without so much of the time, and yet it is something that the scriptures emphasize time and time again. To experience the presence of God is a profoundly moving experience. Christianity is at its heart an experiential encounter. It is not simply a philosophy or a set of social actions. If reading the previous postcards hasn't encouraged you to really ask God for more of an experiential encounter with him, then I'm afraid you've missed the point. (laughs) So there's that one. And, you know, I'm reminded of just one of my professors when I was in seminary. He used to say, Um, All early Christian theology was prayed theology. It was experiential. This is how people came into that, understanding that presence. Um, And yet uh, at the same time in the West today, so much of Christianity has been reduced to thought process, propositions, and social action.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, there's, I don't think we need any more knowledge. I think we need people actually doing and experiencing and, and living this thing out. So I I agree wholeheartedly on
1: that one for sure. All right. So here's point seven. Sometimes we just don't conceive that God might want to move in a situation. It's the problem of unbelief. One of our team members told of a story who was dead in his mother's womb. And so this was a very significant story in my mind. So often we are prepared just to accept circumstances at face value. Another immensely aspect of the story is that our team member wasn't just doing the occasional bit of intercession at home for her Canadian friend and the baby in her womb. She got on a train and traveled there and laid hands on the woman and invited the Holy Spirit to come upon her. My guess is that the miracle would not have happened without that. Healing ministry is better in a hands-on format. Well, this was a story that one of our teammates told. It didn't occur in Armenia, it occurred beforehand, but um, this teammate uh, had a friend whose baby died in the womb and medically had been documented as dead for seven days. She went to her friend, laid hands on the woman's stomach, um, prayed over the baby, rebuked the spirit of death, Meanwhile, the father of the baby was, oh, Lord, we love you anyway. Even if you take away those, you know, that we love, we will serve you no matter what. And our teammate was thinking, quiet, you know, God wants to bring this baby back. Well, the baby came back to life and is today a four-year-old boy. Wow, that's amazing. So again, don't accept things that, you know, seem to be uh, as though they really—that's all there is to it. And you know, I'm reminded of—I uh, might have been two or three years ago. There was a child that died at Bethel in Redding, California. I—I I, I never knew the parents, but I remember clearly the name of the baby was Olive. And you know, they called the church to pray and to contend for this baby's life. In the end, the baby didn't come back to life. And many, many Christians around the world were mocking Bethel Church. I admire them for having the faith. To go after that. Okay, that one failed. All right. I mean, that's going to happen. But but what if Olive had come back to life like this child did? That was in the womb. By the way, there was no heartbeat for seven days, and uh, the midwife even said, you know, if a baby has a heartbeat, you know it. You even you, you don't even need a fetal heart monitor. You can put your ear on the woman's stomach and hear the baby's heartbeat beating inside, uh, with no other equipment. But but that baby actually had been on a fetal heart monitor. And it was flatlined. There was no heartbeat for seven days. And yet that child is now four years old. So, I mean, these things do happen. They can happen. We need to shift our perspective on what God is willing to do and able to do. Amen. That's great. All right. Point seven, the prophetic is really important. However, many parts of the church are quite content to live without it. Apart from the couple of prophetic words that I gave in the beginning before we really got started. And two other words I gave on the Sunday at church, I heard a number of words given, often by Ken, which were very specific and future-oriented. You have to take a position that either the prophetic is really nonsense or wishful thinking, or else it's a powerful resource from the Spirit of God that can release things into people's lives as it is spoken out. If it's the latter, and I think it is, then sadly, most of us are ignoring it. Well, that hardly needs any further commentary, but um, he really captured, at least for me, what is why I am so passionate about the prophetic, and I want to go after it more and more. All right, point nine, spiritual warfare is real. Um, One of our teammates said the biggest problem of the American church is that it doesn't know Satan is real, and he is trying to kill them. If in real life, there was a sniper lying in wait for people to come out of a shopping center and he was shooting some of them dead as they came out, they would respond in a certain way and take avoidance action. But in the West, the church generally has no awareness that Satan is out to kill us. And we take no avoidance action to stop ourselves from being killed. Things like going to a fortune teller will frequently make you sick. That last statement is shorthand for the following. If you break the law of God and turn to the demonic for help, even though you may not realize that is what you are in fact doing, they will take advantage of your having opened a doorway into your life and will act to harm you. Demons come to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus wasn't kidding. Well, again, I've, I've talked about this in other places, not so much here on our podcast, but I mean, this is the reality of the world in which we live, and yet so often we just seem to be ignorant of it so we just talked about the the reality of spiritual warfare. And I will say going out on this trip, because we knew we were going to teach on spiritual warfare, it was, it was a real tough go getting out of town, meaning leaving the United States or Europe, if it was our European team members. Um, And while we were there, we ran into some warfare and and I've got this thing going on in my leg right now. I'm convinced it's spiritual warfare. I just haven't been able to get free of it yet. Um, I'm counting on the Lord to fix it. Uh, But today at this moment, one day home, uh, still struggling with the pain. Uh, Point 10, the healing of memories and damaged emotions can often be as profoundly transformative as the casting out of demons and sometimes even more so. From their descriptions of their circumstances, the majority of people I prayed for and saw healed in Armenia definitely needed healing of memories. However, I couldn't swear they actually needed and received deliverance Uh, because the manifestations were different from what I am accustomed to seeing in the West. All right. So again, just like I was talking about the root canal, same idea here. It's just that he was particularly focusing on that one root. Point 11, maybe there is more to this relics stuff than I previously gave credit for. It's easy to dismiss all of it as superstition. Do you remember those handkerchiefs and aprons that Acts 19, 12 says were taken from Paul and brought to sick people and that when they touched them, the people were healed of their diseases and evil spirits left them? Let's ask a couple of questions. Do we believe the Bible is being historically real here? And if so, how long did this impact from the handkerchiefs and aprons last? And where are those handkerchiefs and aprons now? As the church realized that people got healed by them, I'm sure they were carefully kept. You can be sure, for example, that if I had been away to a, to a meeting led by Catherine Kuhlman and she had prayed over certain cloths, that when I took them to my family, the sick and my family got healed and delivered, I would have taken really, really good care of these cloths. They would have been our family's most precious possession to be handed down from generation to generation. So maybe we shouldn't dismiss the idea of relics so quickly. Now that comment arose because we had a long conversation about relics. The Armenian Orthodox Church, generally called the Armenian Apostolic Church, uh, like many churches of that type, um, they do deal with the relics of saints. And a lot of our team didn't really have a framework for that. But after seeing some things, um, they were rethinking it. I'm not trying to create a superstitious cult here. I'm just what I'm really suggesting is that God is willing to use many different means to heal people, and he's that eager to do it. And the fact that we have this thing with the aprons and the ha- aprons and handkerchiefs from Paul in the book of Acts, uh, as well as the story of the dead man who was raised when his body fell on Elisha's bones back in 2 Kings. Um, this suggests to us that there may be times when, I would say, unusual things like this are used by the Lord.
0: Yeah, and I think that just speaks to, to what we were, have been talking about, I mean, I don't know, maybe the whole time is that, you know, we can't, we can't keep the idea of God and what he can do in our small Western paradigm boxes. And um, you know, it sounds like he's discovering that. As well,
1: that's right. It's exactly right. Okay, uh, point twelve. This is a simple one but profound. As you know, a woman kissed me when I was in Armenia. She was probably about seventy years old, so my wife has nothing to worry about. And she also kissed my teammate first, um, and so that team was a mixed, uh, you know, one man, one woman. So she kissed both the man and the woman. Now this is not on the lips; it's on the cheek, but. The woman was just overjoyed that the pain she had felt throughout her whole body was gone. Other people likewise beamed with joy when their pain was gone. Their faces changed and they just looked different. The woman that we prayed for uh, in the orchard was another example. We had one church that was a very poor small church where we visited, but they had a small orchard outside for growing fruit. So we prayed out in the orchard that's what he's referring to Uh, we shouldn't underestimate the blessing we are called to bring into people's lives Um, point 13 many many christians don't know how to receive from the holy spirit there are things you can do to resist grieve and make more difficult what the holy spirit wants to do in your life on the other hand there are things that you can do to open your life to the holy spirit and facilitate what he wants to do in you the saints over the centuries knew this and went with the flow rather than fighting against the current of the holy spirit The Western mindset has little understanding of this. (laughs) How about that? That's great. (laughs) Um, Point 14, there there were a stunningly high number of people who sought help in Armenia from, quote, spiritual power that is not from Jesus, unquote. So many people went to get help from witches or fortune tellers. And I made mention of this on our last podcast that for a long time, Armenia, which is a poor country, uh, they didn't have any medical infrastructure, especially under the Soviet Union. And so they just went and got help from shamans and nativist healers and whatever. Um, and then he, uh, this, this writer uh, goes on and says, for example, the parents of the child with migraines who went to the witch and allowed the witch to put the blood of a rooster on her forehead in order to receive healing. A lot of people used curses to settle disputes and harm their enemies. Sometimes curses come, seemingly unintentionally. Um, It was difficult for me to believe that the Turkish midwife cursed a baby girl at birth with the intention of causing her harm. Perhaps it was less of an intentional spoken word, but which functioned nevertheless in the child's life as a curse. But even those of us in the West who use alternative spiritual methods and resources, sometimes we recognize them as "Quote spiritual resources that are not of Jesus." Unquote. And sometimes we are blind to the fact that we are trying uh, that we are trying. "Quote spiritual resources that are not of Jesus." Unquote. The more common things that fall into this category are things like Reiki healing and yoga, but there are many others. As I saw this in Armenia, I understood the the uh, the extent to which this was true in my own home country. And I, tend to, I intend to warn my friends and fellow church members about these dangers. Well, I'm always talking about this and constantly getting mocked for it. But when you see it up close and personal in this way, um, it's an astounding thing. And I'll just share one simple story of a woman with whom I prayed. The team was stuck. They called me over. I started talking with her. And she mentioned that, you know, she had had, uh, she'd been taken to a, a witch, a, a shaman, a nativist healer. There's a particular word for it in Armenian, but, but anyway, this is the sociological category. Um, and because of the, the process that was done, this, this individual, this woman had headaches for many, many years and they would never go away. And the headache actually extended down her body And when she mentioned that she'd been taken to this uh, nativist healer and the process that had been performed, I broke the power of that curse. I commanded the spirit that was attached to the blood that was used, as well as the potion that had been drunk. I commanded that spirit to go. And the woman, literally, her eyes rolled back in her head and her body just fell to the floor. She just collapsed like a sack of potatoes. And she lay there quivering and twitching for a couple of moments, and then she began to cry. And after perhaps three or four minutes of crying, she began to laugh. And when she pushed herself up off the floor, she was completely healed. Well, a lot of Christians would have a hard time taking what I just said seriously. I teach on this, but again, they don't really take it at face value. So this individual was capturing that point. And his last closing point, the world is a lot more of a spiritual place than Western countries recognize. We neglect it to our peril.
0: That is uh, very, very true. And I mean, I don't know how many conversations you and I have had about so much uh, unintended harm that people suffer because they just refuse to believe that there's a spiritual battle that's waging. Yep. Uh, In the heavenly. So, yeah.
1: Right.
0: Sounds like a very eye opening trip.
1: Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that people, you know, they learn it experientially. They see it. Their hands are on top of it, it's right in front of their eyes. Um, And so, those are some of the key takeaways that this particular individual had. And again, if I could say who it was, the role that they hold in society, it would be even more impactful because I will simply say this is an individual who is paid. Uh, well to be highly observant analytical and calculating and these were the takeaways that uh that this individual had
0: no that's so cool that's and awesome. that was only
1: the 10th postcard i didn't do the other nine so there you go <laughs> anyway well, that, all right well let's uh, let's wrap it up here i know you got to get going and i have to get going too um and next week we'll resume talking about more regular topics uh such as we commonly do
0: That's awesome. Well, Ken, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. And we look forward to seeing you right back here on another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. God is Not a Theory is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Julia with Orbis Ministries. I just wanted to let you know that if you'd like to learn more from Ken and connect with others in the Orbis community, You can download the Orbis Ministries app on your Apple or Android phone. On the app, you'll find a free teaching archive, a conference schedule, and an internal messaging community. A link to download the app can be found in your description. Thanks so much. God bless.